Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Writers of the Future is one of the largest running writing competitions in the world with four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Owen Hubbard. I want to let you know that the Writers of the Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. So whether you're looking forward to discovering top new voices in the genre or are an aspiring writer or artist looking to see what these artists have done to win, this book is for you. Today's guest is Alex Schwarzman. My introduction to Alex was very special. I had posted a survey on social media asking those who listen to this podcast what they most liked about it and what, if anything, they would like to see changed. While I received no suggestions on what to change, two separate responses, Eric Stallsworth and Candace Lyle, recommended I interview Alex Schwarzman, a new author name for me. So I went to his website and reached out to him. And now after multiple back and forth emails, I've read his book, Cacistocracy, an awesome word in itself, which we're going to talk about. And he has read an L. Ron Hubbard title, Typewriter in the Sky, which I felt was somewhat in the same vein. And so now with that said, let me introduce someone I think will become another must-read author for you. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me, John, and a special thanks to the readers who recommended that you interview me. It's always really great to hear that, uh, that there are readers out there invested enough to, in, an, in an author to, uh, to go out and champion them. Absolutely, absolutely. And having read your book, I understand why. So I guess to begin with, I don't really know a whole lot about your, your curve, and one thing that the listeners of this podcast enjoy like, what are other writers that have made it and all the different channels there are to making it? What's your personal journey from what you were before being a published author to now being a published author? So I am a total outsider. Uh, when I started writing, not only is English my third language, but I, I've been a lifelong science fiction fan. I've been reading uh, devouring uh, books my, you know, since I was a young kid. But I never even met a real-life science fiction author until well after I've been published. Wow. So, so I was w operating in a total vacuum. I've never been to a science fiction convention. I've never uh, attended a reading. I was just this guy who goes into a Barnes & Noble or any other bookstore and browses the shelves for a couple of hours and just picks up a whole bunch of books that, uh, that seem interesting. And then what, whenever I find an author I really like, I just go and buy everything that they've ever written and just read all of it. Uh, that was my background. And so I've read thousands upon thousands of novels and short story collections. But um, it, I would never thought that my English would be good enough to write fiction professionally. So that fear held me back. And it wasn't until uh, around my mid-30s that I finally, finally convinced myself that I should give it a shot. And again, knowing absolutely nothing, I've decided that how, how, how can I possibly know whether my writing is good enough uh, to be published? Sure. So I thought, well, what if I start writing short stories? I send them out to, to magazines, and if they get published, then that's professional editors saying that my writing is good enough to be published, and then I can start working on a novel. And so with no preparation whatsoever, I started writing and submitting short stories, 
And I was shocked when about six months later, I got my first acceptance and days after that, a second acceptance. And then it just kept on rolling and rolling and, lo- and rolling, except writing short stories is like popcorn. I could not stop. I kept doing it, even though I knew I could write a novel at that point. Uh, but I've written and sold about 100 short stories before I even attempted to write a novel. Wow. So how is... I'm still a bit like uh, flummoxed here on this. You just like in mid theories, I just, okay, English is the third language. And I just started writing and doing it. So did you, what did you have that led you up to being literate? Like what, what did, what was your past that you're that literate that you read or in a position that you could read that much to then go in and start writing and, and submitting? Was that, was it from an educator or because of a job you had that like, I'm still a little bit um, mystified. So, I was introduced to reading at an early age. My dad was a huge book fanatic. Uh, you know, he was a bibliophile. He collected books. He, you know, he he introduced me to it, and I was reading. Uh, I, I grew up in Odessa, Ukraine, so I was reading in Russian. And uh, good books were a scarcity, sure. so they were they were hard to find. So we had to kind of scramble. And if I wanted to read good science fiction, not only was very little of it translated and published, or or, or published in the original Russian. But it was difficult to find. So for me, it was more of a challenge to find books than to uh, than to read them. Reading was the easy part. I was at, at at a certain point around you know ten to thirteen years of age. I was probably reading a book a day. Wow. So uh, so I, and of course I was reading in Russian. And my family uh, moved from the Soviet Union back when that was still a going concern right before it collapsed uh, over to New York City in 1990. And at the time, my level of English was good enough to ask for directions, but not good enough to understand the answer. <laughs> so I always had this idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a writer. But considering that I couldn't even read books in English yet, I gave up on that for, for the longest time. And to this day, there are certain quirks, and I probably have to work a little bit harder than a lot of people to fix them, like understanding how to properly use past, you know, past uh, perfect tense. Mm-hmm. Whether whether to say had or have had, right? I understand intellectually how that works, but that part of my brain just turns off when I when I when <laughs> I get to the writing part. That's the bad thing. The good thing is, uh, being multilingual really helps you because uh, you when you learn a language when, rather than just grow up with it, you tend to learn a lot of really good vocabulary, especially if you're predisposed toward languages. So that's why I'm using big words like akistocracy and generally, uh, you know, play with language uh, in a lot of my stories and books. Uh, I love it. And it's just something that I, I've been passionate about for a long time. But really, my it wasn't the career that prepared, prepared me for writing. It was just that I never stopped reading, reading, listening to audiobooks, whatever format, you know, consuming, consuming that fiction. I did write a fair amount of nonfiction for work. Uh, which kind of, you know, shoved me forward to that million word mark. Uh-huh. But what was your what never... was your work? So um, one, I, I've I've had a lot of different uh, uh, adventures, like kind of a Mark Twainish in that sense, where I had a lot of different careers. And one of them was playing a trading card game called Magic the Gathering for sure. a living. Uh, I was ranked third in the world for a while. Uh, I won a lot of championships. And one of the things that uh, paid my bills was uh, writing tournament coverage and strategy articles for uh, magazines and uh, and websites uh, back you know back when that was just starting out at the, the very first uh, 
uh, wave of internet startups. Well, how cool uh, is so that? I wrote, yeah, I wrote a lot of stuff about magic, and uh, uh, and you know, I traveled the world. I've played magic in over thirty countries. So that was another thing that kind of prepared me for life as a writer because I get to write about these cool, uh, exotic to Americans places, and a lot of those are places I've actually visited. Wow. Okay, that's that's. I did not expect that. I just studied your your book and looked up cacistocracy and cleared that up and just got into the mindset of what what kind of a person would be writing about this and that's why I said I've got to talk to him. So, um, all right. So you're an avid reader and that's that comes up quite a bit from other uh, major authors. The ones that are really successful, they're also amazingly well read. So you obviously cacistocracy. So why don't you go ahead and provide your you know a description of it and then we're going to get into that and then we'll get into the um how you became a you know how you're doing as as a published author your you know your channel that you're using so let's just talk a little bit about cacistocracy because that was such a fun book and the title is just so apt and it's so apt to like right now well it's been right now for decades but nevertheless it's still right now that whole concept so what is cacistocracy so, uh, first of all, this is the second book in the series called The Converse Chronicles. And the first book was called The Middling Affliction. And that came out about two years ago with Kakistocracy following a few months ago. Uh, it is a snarky, funny uh, urban fantasy adventure with lots and lots of action and pop culture references. So imagine Men in Black, uh, but in book form, or, or perhaps... Uh, uh, a much more snarkier, much more New York-based uh, version of, of the Dresden Files. Uh, so that's that, that's the series. And the book itself, uh, for, uh, the word kakistocracy, first of all, for those who uh, are not familiar, refers to the form of government by the worst of us. And so I thought it was a really fun word, especially in light of what I was doing with the series. So in the first book, uh, New York City, uh, the whole series is kind of a love letter to Brooklyn, which is uh, my adopted uh, home and, and the borough where I've lived for over 30 years now. So there is a lot of characters that are based on larger-than-life New York City personalities. And one of those personalities uh, was a certain real estate developer that uh, you know that had a reality TV show and was known for uh, his passion for the gilded uh, rather, rather than the truly golden materials, etc. And I wrote bits of that. I wrote the, my first Conrad Brand stories involving this character many, many years ago. In fact, uh, it was published, the story that was one of the bases for the series was published in the very first issue of Galaxy's Age magazine, edited by Mike Resnick. Wow, was, yeah, Mike uh, was a, a dear friend. He was a dear friend of mine as well. Uh, we, uh, you know, he, he he invited me. He actually invited me into that to write something for that very first issue, and we've published each other many, many times over in different anthologies. And, now, he and tried for a couple of years to get me to to buy Galaxy's Edge and to, and to publish it. And he said, "Okay, I'll do it." So uh, yeah, he did it. Now it's they they have a, a habit of giving first dibs to writers to feature winners to uh, to be publishing it. But anyway, so, sorry, go ahead. So, so yeah, so the, 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 the character kind of existed before uh, the real-life counterpart entered politics. And when, when I was finishing the book, when, when the book already had a publisher and I was kind of in the process of doing some revisions, I'm like, well, let me set up book two. And I set up book two by suggesting that uh, the, you know, the, the, the character's name in the book is Bradley Holcomb. 
that Bradley Holcomb was going to run for, for the mayor of New York City. And so in the second book, he becomes mayor, you know, a little bit of a spoiler there because it doesn't happen in the first chapter, but I think that's fair yeah. enough to, uh, to It doesn't to ruin anything. Right. And he becomes mayor, and this causes a lot of headaches for uh, for the characters involved because he gets into, into bed with uh, people that just don't like the magical residents of, of New York City and kind of decide to oppress them. Now, before I, I piss off about half of the potential readers, I should say that the politics of this universe are not the politics that we live in today. This is not a left versus right issue. Right. Uh, this is more about making fun of a certain personality and kind of uh, creating a completely different set of uh, issues that the characters are fighting. I mean, there's still you know universal concepts like that. You know, they're fighting for uh, freedom and you know you know freedom of choice and kind of being able to uh, have checks and balances and control things that uh, uh, that our politicians are doing. But it's not, a, the book is not an indictment of like one political philosophy or another that we have in the, in the real world. For sure. Is it was definitely not that. I didn't get that at all. In fact, earlier when I wrote you, I was this, this one character sounded like somebody in politics. But then as I was, went through the book, he said, don't worry, that's not where it's going. And so I was relieved because I don't get into that with, with this podcast. But then, and getting through the book, it's a whole different aspect of, you know, of your, like I said, I wasn't sure if it was, if what you're doing was satire or if it was, you know, some other sarcasm, you know, whatever it was on a thing, but it also went to like, cacistocracy also is the concept of, which Hubbard got into as well when he, when he talked politics, the, the problem with democracy is that they will elect into office the person that will do the most harm to them you know, and the most good for themselves. And so you've got this, this guy that's, you know, been elected into office and it's not, you don't, it's not like Republican or Democrat. It's just like you follow the money trail or follow the power trail. And that's, that's, that actually rings true regardless of the, uh, the uh, politics that you follow. And it's like, you definitely follow money trails and you follow power trails and the levels and how it goes on there and how you put it into the fantastical, makes it much more palatable, even though you're looking and go, gosh, that's, that is what happens, you know, even though it's obviously not fantasy, but it's, I just, I was just thoroughly thrilled reading the, you know, your book. And I have to read a lot. I read almost like, I don't read a book a day like you were doing there, but I'll read a book a week to prepare for these. And it's just, um, it was a, it was a, a nice change of pace and just so much fun. Well, thank you so much. I mean, that my goal was certainly to have it work on multiple levels. So you've mentioned a couple of times you weren't sure satire or you know what kind of humor it is. I like to think of it as snark, and I don't like. I know snark as a word kind of has a negative connotation, but I don't think it's necessarily negative. I think it's sort of a very sarcastic, very New Yorkish st style of humor mm -hmm. that is appropriate to to the series. But I've also learned, and this is, a, a, I think, an important tip for anybody who is attempting to write humor in their work, is that uh, it's very dangerous because whatever what, what's funny to me and you may be completely not funny to a different reader. Sure. And so the trick to me is to make sure that the story is interesting enough and the stakes are high enough that even if no joke lands whatsoever the reader can still be engaged in it as a story that attempts and fails at humor 
but has an interesting adventure that they can follow. And so I tried to write these books in that manner where I kind of assume that, you know, I, I crack myself up when I'm writing with some of these things. <laughs> I just assume that none of the jokes are going to land. And I ask myself, well, can the story still work for the reader? Right. Good. And that, uh, that makes good sense. And that's one of the things I wanted to be able to discuss. So as regards to, to this, so now you have a publisher, so you've, you're, you've gone from writing contests and getting, or not, or not writing contests, but writing short stories to get published and then transitioned to novels. How'd that work so that you're able to get whatever magazines are publishing you to then getting somebody interested in? Did you end up with an agent or you just send out stuff yourself with your pitch letter, having all the magazines you're publishing? How'd you do that? So one of the advantages of uh, going through the path, which I did, which is certainly not for everyone. You don't have to write short stories first. I recommend it. I think it's a good idea for new writers. It gives them the the toolkit and teaches them a lot about writing that can then later be applied to the longer form as well. So one of the big advantages was that uh, through my stories getting published in pro markets, I've gotten multiple offers of representation from agents before I actually had a novel. Wow. And so I was able to pick and choose and ultimately, uh, you know, go with one agent who uh, was unable to sell my books. And we parted ways after a few years amicably. Uh, and now I am with Jabberwocky, which is an agency that represents people like Brandon Sanderson and Charlene Harris and Simon R. Green. So uh, I'm definitely a small fish in a big pond, but it's an excellent agency. And um, we've been working together for a few years now. So they've sold uh, two of my books. They sold the audio rights. So you know they're, they're doing well for me. And I did kind of experience it both ways because my very first novel, when I was still with my original agent, uh, my very first novel uh, was a completely different sort of book. It was an epic fantasy, but it was too slim a volume to be an epic fantasy, and it kind of didn't fit the mold. It was, you know, it was more like a political fantasy drama. Uh, so it was too difficult to sell to a traditional publisher. So I self-published that book, and then I was able to find a publisher for my, you know, my future novels after that. So I've dipped the toe in both pools, and I think that both are absolutely viable paths to publication. And it depends on what kind of writer you want to be. It depends on how much time you want to spend writing and how much time you want to spend working on doing all sorts of promotional stuff and how good of a salesman you are. So I prefer to, I have a limited amount of creative writing time. Like I, I still have a day job, so I focus on that a lot. And uh, uh, when I do have time to work on creative projects, I would rather be writing or translating or editing than uh, setting up my Amazon ads and doing right all sorts of other things that have to be done if you want to be a successful self-published author. I'm also a slow writer, which is a bad thing if you want to be self-published. So those are the reasons why traditional publishing is a better fit for me. Uh, so as long as the publishers will have me, I'll continue going with that path. But I'm also not afraid to revisit self-publishing one day if I end up with something that I love but can't find a publisher for. I get it. So... All right, so that was good. So that's I've definitely not have not heard that as the the route to uh, to publishing through a through an agent. But that's that makes total sense, and I kind of like your answer probably better than most because with writers of the future, it's a short story competition, and so we encourage people to write short stories for various reasons. And some people say, "Well, I'm I'm a novel writer. I just 
I think novels. I thought, okay, cool. You know, but the idea of composition, creating story, how did that work for you transitioning? When did you know that you're ready for novels or what was the thing that clicked for you that makes novel writing different than short story writing? So it was a slow and painful transition, I have to admit. Uh, my very first novel has multiple short stories incorporated into it. And if you read it carefully enough, you can kind of tell where they are. And I kind of did that on purpose in a way mm-hmm. because uh, I knew how to write short stories pretty well by then, but I had no idea how to write a novel. And I heard it said that you relearn how to write a novel with every novel that you write, uh, probably for a good long while. Uh, that certainly has been true with my case. And looking at the books that I finished, it has definitely been, you know, I've, I've seen this path charted where my second novel had a few of the short story episodic things in it, but it was much more of a novel mm-hmm. in itself. And then my third novel, the one you read, Thickistocracy, it really doesn't have that uh, DNA of short stories in it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a complete book in its own. And then the next two books that I'm working on are like that as well. So one of the transitions that I had to learn was how to write long. Most people have trouble writing short. They have trouble fitting an entire story they want to tell into five or 6,000 words or whatever the, the upper word count limit is for the project that they're trying to write for. Uh, for me, it was the opposite. Uh, I had to learn how to be less laconic, how to give my plot time to breathe, uh, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, like slow my, my roll down a little bit, if I, if I may. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that was the transition that, that took some time and definitely took a couple of books uh, before I felt comfortable. And now I feel really good about it because I can still switch to the short story form and just, you know, get a story prepared. A lot of the time I get invitations into, into anthologies and everything. So the, I love those because when, when, when somebody invites you into a themed anthology, it generates a story prompt that you would never have had otherwise. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you're thinking about, a, you know, like something that springs to life that wouldn't have existed. So I love themed anthologies for that reason. Uh, but at the same time, I fo- spend most of my time writing long form as well. So right. I kind of try to stay active on both so I don't forget how to write short stories accidentally. Yeah. One thing that was that when I decided to ask you if, if you read anything from, from Hubbard and when I sent you the typewriter in the sky, I sent you the, uh, the ebook version of it, is I read this one second. This was in, um, I'm sure it's chat, it was page 140 of 242 pages. You're, um, you talk about uh, Asia had used her connections to borrow a meeting room at the main branch of the New York Public Library. That's when everything had already gone appetite over 10 cup. The iconic building near Bryant Park was a well-known landmark, even in countless movies and TV shows. It had been recently renamed the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building because the guy had, quote, because the guy had donated a wheelbarrow of money, but who could ever be expected to pronounce or spell a surname like that correctly? And um, New Yorkers shrugged and went on calling it the main library building or just the one with the lions. So, you know, with your last name, I just went, okay, I thought, okay, he's using, I assume you're, it was like a poking fun at yourself a little bit. And like, which in the book, Hyper in the Sky, Hubbard does that because all those people he meets in the bar are his pen names that he uses on writing stuff. So he meets with these different guys and even just the main, the main author, Horace Hackett. You know, which obviously when you read and you're going along and see, oh, my gosh, the stuff that he does as an author, just he really is a hack writer. I thought, which is um, 
by the way, speaking of Mike Resnick, that was his favorite Hubbard book um, called. Rec- I can absolutely see that. Yeah, because it's no, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's recursive science fiction. He said it's probably the first recursive science fiction book ever written, which is science fiction about science, a book written about its, you know that genre about itself. And um, so I was just curious what you thought of, of the book itself, and if you could see the, how it, I felt like there was a connection there. There absolutely was, and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so first, I have to say that I actually listened to it as an audiobook, yeah. and man, was the production fantastic. I thought the, the actors did a great job. The, the production values were, were super high. So anybody who enjoys audiobooks the way that I do, I would certainly recommend uh, picking it up in that format because it does add to the And it was a full cast production yeah. as well, so it wasn't just one guy reading the book, which is uh, you know the case in, in, with most audiobooks. So that was excellent. Um, I actually did not know that uh, the, 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 that all of the characters in the bar were, were, were his pseudonyms, but that absolutely adds. And I love, uh, you know, I, I love Easter eggs like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that that really adds to, you know, when you when you recognize them, when you actually get the reference. If you don't, the book is still good. Yeah. But it certainly adds to the enjoyment. And the meta story plot is something that uh, any science fiction writer can appreciate. And of course. There's been so many examples. I mean, you have Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Kilgore Trout. You have, you know, like many, many science fiction writers have since taken a stab at kind of like the hack writer stereotype. But I can see how this is really the gold standard for that. And a lot of the things, what, what really, what I loved about the book is when we get from the, the, the stuff that's happening in the story to the, uh, to the Horace parts, a lot of the problems that he's dealing with still exist today. I mean... Probably my favorite small bit, which is which is a complete throwaway line, but my favorite small bit was when the editor, when, when Horace got out of line and the editor threatens him by basically saying, if you don't behave, then I'm going to, you know, then I'm going to have this particular guy draw the book cover. And he's like, oh, no, no, not that. And I, and I can totally see that happening today as well, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, so the industry hasn't changed all that much. I mean, you know, we, we may have gone from everybody talking at the bar to everybody talking through emails and, 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 and online forums, but a lot of stupidity in it kind of remains the same. And a lot of kind of hack writing has gone on into the self-published realm these days, but it still exists and it's still delicious to make fun of it and to read about, uh, you know, to read a talented writer making fun of the, of, of the presumed hack writer. Yeah. So on that, what you did on making fun of politicians and uh, career people that, you know, they, they stick with the power line instead of what doing what's right and stuff like that. I thought there was definite similarities of how, of how you just are poking fun at it. And unfortunately there's so many examples that fit the bill going back, not just current, but even going back, you know, decades and no doubt going future for decades, it's, your story fits a persona. It fits a scenario. It's not necessarily fits, your, you know, the, the, this person, or that person, there's just so many people could be your politicians and you got the guys that want to do right. And the guys that do right and they get toasted and the guys that, you know, sell their soul because they don't want to get toasted, you know, all that type of stuff. It's, it, you got that as in real life, but it's such a fun way of communicating it that you kind of go, that's why I thought like satire because it's the satura, you know, the, the bitter fruit, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, 
where you see that type of stuff just still happens. And it's like, I said, I was, for me, it was just delicious, you know, seeing that and just seeing, okay, that definitely fits in, in New York. Obviously that's the scene. How accurate I'm, I haven't gone to New York nearly as much as I used to. I went, I only went, I went again last year for the first time. And since the pandemic, I used to go like four or five times a year for, for meetings, but, um, or all the, the streets and, and the buildings, those are all accurate. They're all accurate. Uh, throughout the, the series, uh, a lot of the locations that I use uh -huh. are all real places. Some of them are places that I know exactly where they are, but I don't tell you because they're private businesses or, you know, thing, or the, but they're based, like the bagel shop that you've read about mm -hmm. in the book is very much based on my favorite bagel shop that's just moved, you know, 10 minutes, uh, you know, t 10 minutes away from where it really is. Uh, a lot of the, you know, and, and of course the, the public locations of so places like the Gravesend Cemetery, um, you know, a, you the know, library, the, the, the library, they're all real places, yeah. of course. And, uh, uh, my own business is the only real small, small, small business that is actually in the book. And I trash it in my, in my book. So that <laughs> this, the, the store called King's Games that you've encountered in the book, uh -huh. I own that store in real life. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, so it's a game store that I own in Brooklyn, New York, and it's basically exactly how it's described in the book. And without giving away too many spoilers, there's an entire chapter that takes place in that store, and it kind of gets trashed a little bit. Yeah, it does. But uh, the owner maintains his integrity, so that's good. Yes, of course. Of course, and, and of course. So I didn't base, base the owner on myself, but, uh, you know, but I kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a different character in the first book that I based more on myself than him, and that's the... Uh, Conrad's landlord, mm. you know, he's kind of like a, a caricature of me. I get it because Conrad basically the way that, it, that his house is described, he lives in my house. So, so that's uh, and again, the, these are not the references that you need to understand or know. They're not going to be relevant to anybody. Right. It's just something that I, you know, add into the story for my own enjoyment. Yeah, but I do use a lot of history and a lot of, especially a lot of the weird history of New York City. Uh, one of the major characters in, in the story is called Mose, mm -hmm. and he's based on the very first superhero that in, in New York's lore called Mose the Fireboy from the 1800s. Oh, that's really? Real, oh, that's real. Yeah, that, that's whether or not he actually existed is uh, is a question, but it's certainly in the annals of New York history, uh, and and a lot of the other places and situations that arise in the story in the book, uh, in in the entire series, really are all real places. Uh, the, the library that you mentioned, of course, uh, really did recently get renamed the, the you know, the, the Jason Schwartzman Library. I just thought it was really fun to make fun of that, especially in light of how often my unusually spelled name, surname, is misspelled, in, even on book covers sometimes, like uh, in anthologies that I'm in, they'll, they'll, they'll misspell it right on the cover. So I was like, yeah, yeah, it's hard to spell. I'll make fun of that in the story. And it just gives it that little meta uh, element that uh, that we talked about with typewriter in the sky, yeah, uh, and it, it's never enough of that. It's always it's always fun if you do it. If you don't overdo it too much, yeah. it's always you know it's always, it's always welcome. I think by the readers. Yeah, it made it made your the understory of what you're saying there much more palatable. And you know, if I wanted to just read it as a as just a, a fun quirky story about New York, that's that's cool. You know, you got Ghostbusters, and it's a quirky story about New York, but. And Ghostbusters definitely poked fun at, you know, some of the uh, New York aristocracy there. But that was just, that had been severely Hollywoodized. So it didn't, it lacked any particular impact. Whereas um, what you did there was 
was much more fun and you know the different levels like i said i was able to to take a look at as i was reading along okay that's this is pretty cool so it could be read and understood at different levels and um so the more you understand if i would have understood more about new york i would have gotten more of your easter egg stuff too so that's cool so as an author and maybe you've not had ex this experience but any stories of moments where you were ready to throw in the proverbial towel that you were like, as you're writing, like, oh man, I'm just never going to get this. It seems like you would have had extra things to overcome being English is your third language. But um, a lot of writers look for any excuse they can to say, I, I don't have, I can't write. I don't have what it takes, you know, other excuses. So when I get people who have whatever obstacles overcome, overcome them, it tends to, rub their nose a little bit into it. So they, okay, well, I'll, I'll give another shot. So help. Me. So, so for, for me, I think uh, my experience in this sense is very similar to everyone else's in that you always get rejections. Uh, you have to have a really thick skin if you are to succeed as a writer, whether for short stories or novels or, or really any form at all, because we all get more rejections and acceptances to this day with my awards and my, you know, like success and with novels, I still get more rejections than I get acceptances. And that's okay because it's part of the business. Right. But not everyone has the thick skin to deal with that. I know a number of very talented writers who I consider to be much, much better writers than I've been so far uh, that gave up in frustration because they were constantly running into the wall of these rejections with material that they thought was better than what's getting what's actually getting published. And so uh, when you get a long string of these rejections, it is very easy to uh, get to that point where you feel like you want to throw in the towel. And so my uh, solution to that has always been to make a game of it, to kind of be like, well, I'm going to get 100 rejections this year. <laughs> I'm going to... Uh, treat myself to a piece of a New York cheesecake uh, if I make 50 submissions by the end of, you know, two months from now or whatever. So what, back when I was writing a lot of short stories and shuffling them around the magazines and everything, and, you know, sometimes you'll just have a, a window where you get three acceptances in a week and you're writing high and, you, you know, you feel like on top of the world. And sometimes you'll go for like three months or longer with nothing but rejection after rejection, uh, especially... The ones that really sting are the closed ones. It's not the ones where, like, after a couple of days, they just send you a form rejection. It's the ones where they sit on your story for six months or longer, and they send you a letter, oh, it was so close. We're sure you're going to sell it somewhere else. <laughs> uh, those are the ones that really hurt. Uh, and uh, the way to deal with that is you don't let the story sit on your hard drive and live rent-free, both uh, on your computer and in your head. You have to turn turn it around and just send it back out, uh, you know, to conquer the next, uh, the next submission window. And so again, if you just make, make yourself a spreadsheet, make a game out of it, uh, that makes the, uh, the, that takes the sting out of it a little bit, makes it a little bit more palatable and you kind of keep your nose to the ground, learning about the submission opportunities, like who is looking for what kind of stories. And, you know, I still pay attention to, to, to this day, even though I'm not really submitting almost anything on spec anymore. Uh, I still pay very close attention and I try and guide all of my friends who are writing more short stories or who are, um, you know, a little bit earlier in their writing journey. And I just kind of be like, hey, check out this magazine, check out this Kickstarter, because if they succeed, they'll do an anthology. Uh, you know, take, 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 take a look at this contest and kind of try and encourage them to keep sending out their work and not give up because 
the worst thing that can happen if you uh, if you send in your work is you'll get a no, and that's the exact same no. It's the exact same result if you don't send in your work. Hmm. So the only uh, the only way to go is up from there. The only, you know, if you, you might actually get a positive out- outcome if you keep trying, but you will not get published if you just give up. Right. You definitely can't sell what you don't submit. Right. Yeah. So on, um, at what point did you, or maybe you haven't got this yet, but at what point did you feel like you were like on the right track and okay, I've got this? So I don't know because it depends on what's going on in my career, right? Like right now I'm in a pretty good place. I have a publisher, uh, you know, who's put out two of my books and is waiting on the next one. I, you know, I'm getting steady work when it comes to short stories and everything. But it ebbs and flows, right? The, the, the thing about being a freelancer, and every writer essentially is a freelancer, right? I mean, because we're not hired full-time with a steady salary, et cetera. The thing about being a freelancer is you're going to have lean times and you're going to have, you know, fat times. So you kind of have to, uh, you know, take the good with the bad and know that, like, sometimes the projects will dry up. Sometimes nobody will invite you into an anthology for a period of some some months, and then suddenly you'll get several invitations and you'll have to pick and choose between them because you don't have time to do them all. So uh, to me, if you ask me that question month to month, the answer will really depend on what's going on right there and then. Mm. But the important thing is that I'm enjoying the process. I'm enjoying the journey. Uh, and and you, you don't get into writing for the money. You don't get into writing for the acclaim or success or, you know, it's not the best path for that. You get into it because you love to write. You love to tell stories. And you want people to enjoy your stories and interact with them and get back to you with their feedback or, you know, what, 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 you know whatever way that you can get, get your words out there. So that is how I try to measure success is how many people have actually read my books, read my stories. Uh, how do I get more people to try them out? So that's, uh, that's been a, a, a really big motivator for me, more so than any sort of a paycheck or a royalty. I get it. Do you envision any point when you're going to be able to just be a writer and have that be your your funding source? I hope not, because uh, to me that would put uh, an an entirely different level of pressure on me. Hmm. So I can absolutely see retiring into it, but I wouldn't mentally. I I don't want to think of it as as a job, because once it becomes a job. And then all of a sudden, I'm not having fun anymore. I'm not just tooling around and having a hobby, just like somebody who's solving a Sudoku puzzle or painting miniatures. Uh, so I'd rather think about it that way because when I sit down to write, I do it because I want to. I don't do it because uh, if I fail to do so, then I'm not going to, you know, I'll be eating ramen next month. Uh, you know, so so that's why I, I never really want. You know, everybody's kind of like, oh, my inspiration is to become a full time writer, and and for me, it's like. No, my inspiration is to tell good stories. And if people like them enough to to buy the books and give me money, that's wonderful. But that's a bonus. Good. All right. Well, that's that makes sense. And um, anybody that's been able to survive on, on Magic the Gathering as the number three player in the world, um, you're, you're definitely in the category in League of Your Own anyway. So that's fine. You're not, you're not um, the average run-of-the-mill hobbit. So... Uh, so now when you write your books, different people have, you know, you hear the term plotter versus pantser. Do you, do you, do you already have a series all mapped out and you're just 
plodding through your series. You're on number three now of of that. Um, I just got cacistocracy in the head. I know that's just number two in the series. The converse crime. Yes. So do you have a, a already a whole map of where you want to take this? Um, so I do and I don't. Um, I use what I like to call the lighthouse method. And let me uh, briefly explain what that means because that's the methodology that works really well for me, both for short stories and novels. So uh, some people like to plot everything out within an inch of its life to the point where they have like a 10, 20,000 word document before they write the novel, uh, which really explains everything that's going to happen in every scene of the story. And then they can sit down and write the book quickly. Others have an interesting premise and they just let the characters take, take them where, where they go. I'm scared of both of these scenarios for, for different reasons. I'm scared of the latter scenario because I really don't want to get in trouble. If I don't know where I'm going, then I will just be lost and I'll be wandering around in the forest until I, until I starve and die. <laughs> On the other hand, I don't want to overplot because I found that the most fascinating character situations and lines all come completely out of the left field. They're un- they come unplanned. And so what I like to do is I like to set up a series of lighthouses. So if I'm writing a book, I know exactly where my story begins and I know exactly where it's going to end. Then I have several lighthouses throughout the story where I know that I am in the beginning, the character is going to start at this point. And then at some point, they're going to reach point B in the story. That's the first lighthouse. So when I write a scene, a chapter, anything really, I ask myself, how does it help me get from point A to point B? How do I get to that lighthouse? And once I reach that lighthouse and I write that scene that I've had kind of in my head as a as part of the you know part of the overall plot, then I need to get to the next lighthouse and so on until I reach the end of the story. Now I don't need too many lighthouses because that removes that element of being able to find cool stuff that I wasn't planning on. But there need to be at least several, and the mo- and, and I, by the way, I write the short stories that way as well, mm. where I have to, with absolute certainty, know what happens at the very beginning and what happens at the very end. And I just write every scene in a short story with that ending in mind and go, well, is this developing my characters in a way that's going to pay off at the end of the story? Is this propelling the plot toward that ending? Uh, and so I use that method, and to... Uh, address the series specifically, I know what's going to happen in book three, and it's meant to be a trilogy. So I know the what the, the key elements are, but there will be probably 70% of the actual scenes and dialogue and everything that happens in the story will be stuff that I come up with when I'm writing the book. I get it. Yeah, so do you have multiple series in mind that you're doing? So I actually am taking a quick break from writing uh, the Conradverse books to write a standalone, which I'm super excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The Best of All Possible Planets, and it is a space opera version of Candide by Voltaire, <laughs> written as a Futurama episode. Uh, so this is, what, whereas the Conradverse is an adventure story with humor in mm-hmm. it, this is straight out comedy. This is more borrowing from Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. And uh, basically the idea is that these characters, instead of like going around different parts of uh, Europe and and the Americas in, 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 in Voltaire's book, they go from planet to planet and every planet they visit is a science fiction cliche that's overused in a space opera. 
So for example, one planet they go to is populated by killer robots that want to kill all humans, except they don't really want to kill all humans. It's just part of the, uh, you know, the old religion that they kind of like, you know, people who go to church only on Christmas and, and to baptize their child. Mm-hmm. That's just part of their religion. So when the humans actually show up, they're like, well, we're supposed to kill them, but we don't really want to. So they have to deal with that. And then the next planet they visit is a, spa- is a space Western planet, which is with all the cliches that you see in Firefly and in Mike Resnick's Widowmaker series, et cetera. And so I kind of take down, you know, popular, you know, science fiction space opera franchises and, and concepts, mm-hmm. and it just kind of propels the story forward. So I'm having a, a grand old time writing that book right now. And when that's finished, then I will go back to finish the, the Converse series. I get it. So um, I guess that what you're saying there is like you're doing it because you you're having fun. Oh, absolutely. That's this play. That, that, that's that, for you, it's this play. I can't amuse the readers before I amuse myself, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if, I, if I'm not chuckling at what I'm writing, they will not find it funny either. Right. Right. For sure. So, um, you know, because I'm in the middle of um, Expeditionary Force. It's a, a series by Craig Allenson. He's been a guest once or twice. Um, and he had this series that was going to go, it just keeps on expanding, you know, because his fans keep on, no, you need more, you need more. So it was going to be five, then seven, then nine, then 12, and 15. I just 15. And then someone just said, yeah, they just saw a press release. He's got two more coming. And it's, it's fun. It's just like it's, he solves the problem of, of faster than light travel and all this stuff. How, how do the stupid humans survive this interstellar travel? You got these other very advanced, it's not like Independence Day or some of those things there where you've got your own 16 rifles able to take out, you know, these aliens that have traveled across the galaxy. It's like, right. You know, so he just, he just has some of it, but it keeps on expanding because it's such a fun premise so i was just curious if that's something that you're willing to have happen you know as it as the story moves along and there's i've i've talked to various authors who yeah it's a trilogy it's 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 five books and it just keeps on going because it's just if it ain't broke don't fix it you know they're just still the fans keep saying oh we need more we need more anymore even if they try other series they get pulled back to that have you or maybe you haven't experienced that yet, so you don't know the answer to that question. So I, I think that, you know, if you create a setting that's interesting enough, then it always leaves room for more storytelling in that setting. Yeah. You may change your protagonist. You may find a different story for the different big bad for the protagonist to deal with. Uh, but there's always an opportunity and a possibility to do more. Having said that, I don't want to get boxed in. I don't sure. want to be the guy that writes the one series with one setting. So I have so many other ideas and stories that I want to tell, and I'm a relatively slow writer. So I kind of have to take it that way. Now, another thing that kind of, when you mention these really, really long series, the thing that always bugs me as a reader is when people give you half a book. They write a book, they leave you on a cliffhanger. There's no end to the story. Uh, you're kind of just like, well, I just purchased half a book and now I have to wait a year or more until I get to find out what happens next. And by then I forgot half of what I read. And so my approach has been to make sure that there is, yes, there's continuity and there's bigger, bigger picture stuff that's going on throughout the series that's continuous, but each book has a definitive story that it closes out. 
So I don't ever want to leave the reader, uh, you know, just just you know leave 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 them with that cliffhanger. Uh, I feel like I trust myself enough, and I trust the reader enough that if they enjoy the story, even if the, even if that story is over, they will come back for the next book because they liked it. Yeah. Not because, not because you're forcing them to because you didn't finish the story. Yeah, it was. Um... I mean, when I got to the end of Kakistocracy, I'm just trying to, I was definitely, okay, I've got to read the next one now. It's like. Of course, there is a hook. Yeah, yeah. There is a hook. And the same is true for The Meddling Affliction. When it ends, it kind of gives you that teaser of like, hey, you know, Brad, you know Bradley Holcomb was running for mayor. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's that could be interesting. Like, I wonder what the possibilities are. And then book two, you get a lot more, you get a little bit of a preview finally of who the big bad is of the, of the, of the trilogy. Uh, without without spoiling it, yeah. And so, yes, of course, it's still it's still an ongoing series. But you've read Kakistocracy and you read it before reading the Middling Affliction, so you could see for yourself that you absolutely can jump in. Oh yeah, absolutely, and, I could. But then, and I was very much intended that way. Yeah, because then when I um, I'm reading your you know your book, I'm looking at some other notes on it too. So he said you're talking about choice. Um, and you have a choice to make. I'll do anything. I repeated the spark within you is dormant, but not extinguished, uh, said Prometheus. Normally you need another dose of ambrosia to reinvigorate it properly. But there in this realm, it's possible to rekindle a tiny portion of it for a brief moment. But you you get into a person has his own choice, you know, to. You know, so your philosophy started, at least it seemed like your philosophy was coming through there. Like you can be in real bad situation yourself into but you always have a choice to do something about it or not you know you can always decide to do the right thing or the wrong thing and it seems to be something that you know the very nature of of your hero's journey here is like is trying to he's trying to do the right thing that's why he didn't want to be one of the the gods he wanted to come back down and do the right thing working in his in his in his Bronx, you know, to take care of his people, you know, he's got to do the right thing. Yeah. And I, I think that if you present the choices, no matter how difficult they are, and of course you have to have difficult choices for your characters or, or the book is not going to be interesting, but what makes the story interesting to me is when there isn't an obvious choice where there's something to be said for both choices to be made. Mm -hmm. And that's when you kind of really have. And so the example that you gave, I feel like that choice is actually relatively easy if you know the character. I mean, he's sure. shown time again that he is – in the first book, he kind of talks about how there's two types of people. There's people who run away from the fire, and there's people who run toward the fire to extinguish it. And so he's definitely the sort of guy who runs toward the fire, so we kind of know that he's going to do that. A more interesting choice for me in this book is his decision where he, you know, he's offered a different job which comes with lots more resources, lots more power, and the ability to affect the world on a macro scale. Whereas if he goes back to what he was doing, he can protect his borough of Brooklyn, but he's kind of operating on a micro scale more, more, more often than not. And so he's given a choice between these two paths. And it's very interesting to me, at least, and hopefully to the reader as well, uh, to see the thought process and what he ultimately decides to do and why. Yeah. Uh, you know, and to me, that is actually the the choice that kind of um, 
interplays very well with the political choices that we're talking about and you know of, of like doing the right thing of choosing to follow the rules that you may not actually like uh etc so i think that 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 choice kind of is more of a third rail of the book than uh than the choice that's presented to him by prometheus which big spoiler but yes you will see prometheus and other demigods and gods show up in the story yeah. because that's part of the setting uh and hopefully uh it's not the the typical way in which they're presented in a lot of other books. So it hopefully does not fall into any form of a cliche. Yeah. That's when I, when I saw it, okay, I had to highlight it. So I knew I could go back to it and, um, you know, you know other things, but that was just, you had the word choice. Okay, good. Let's like, let so we could discuss that as a, as a philosophical concept, because that's one thing too, that, uh, Hubbard gets into is like science fiction authors. He really views them as philosophers. And I look at, you know, your, your book there, there's a lot of philosophy, even though it's fun and you're poking fun and you're, you know, you call it whatever you call it, but there's definitely a sense of philosophy in there too. That's that, that comes through and it's very palatable. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but it's, um, that's one of the hallmarks of good science fiction and has been, and to that, and to some degree fantasy as well, that it gives it an opportunity for an author to, to make a make a, a claim, make a stand. And cause it's, again, Hubbard refers to, you know, science fiction is the herald of possibility. And so you poke, you, you know, point out different things. And with yourself, you've got somebody who can to a, a greater lesser degree be like, Oh, that's cool. I can, I can think with that, you know, it's for somebody who maybe helps them make the right decision down the road because of this guy here with his outrageous scenario that he's in, but he still decides to do what ultimately is, is, the right thing from the day that he's got. Right. And he's not a perfect character by far. Far from it. Really because yeah, he is somebody who doubts himself constantly. He's somebody who uh, is a bit of a grifter, uh, you know, somebody who uh, will bluster and bluff and, and kind of, you know, this is mantra. People like yeah. I mean, he, 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 this is what makes to me that's that's what makes the character interesting yeah. because you don't want somebody the most boring fictional character that I can think of is Superman. Yeah. Because Superman is always going to do the right thing under all circumstances no matter what and you could predict what he's going to do without like worrying about what the writer is going to write next. And so like why why is that interesting? You know, and so having a character who has to uh, you know, kind of deal with insecurities and personal demons and kind of all sorts of, uh, you know, and, and, and it's not always a reliable narrator as well. I mean, like, because this is a first, per, you know, we're in his head where it's a first person narration, but you can kind of tell that sometimes he just tries to convince us and convince himself, but his actions contradict what he's saying outright. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a, uh, you know, it's a good, uh, it, it gives you the ability, while still in first person, it gives you the ability to show that, hey, like we all see ourselves a certain way, but other people may not see us, you know, in that rosy light, or or vice versa. Right. Or they may see us better than what we think we are. Yeah. Uh, depending on uh, where we're, you know, where we're at mentally and what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. Now, I was I was afraid it was going to happen, you know, because we have several more questions that we're not even get able to touch on. So I do want to make sure people know where to find you, and um, what you recommend they read as, as um, Alex 101? So the best way to find me is on my own website, which is alexschwartzman.com. Uh, on that website, you can sign up for my mailing list. Uh, and while I use that maybe two or three times a year, it's not a very active list, 
the advantage of that is that you will get a copy of Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma, which is my most successful short story. It's the one that won the Wispa Award. And it is a pitch-perfect introduction to the sort of stuff that I write. If you like that story, chances are you're going to like most of my humorous writing. Uh, Why don't you send me that link and I'll put it on the podcast and I put it up there. So whatever it is that they go to to sign up for your for your um, email or, or sign up for your stuff there, send it to me and I'll put that in there. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the story, I mean, if you don't want to sign up for the mailing list, you can find the story online as well. I mean, it's been published originally in Intergalactic Medicine Show. Go Scott uh, Card. So, He's another yeah. good friend. He's coming out to Los Angeles in uh, April to uh, teach at the Writers of the Future workshop. That's another uh, uh, author who I'm a big fan yeah. of, uh, Andrew Games, yep. one of my all-time favorite science fiction books. So uh, it was a, an enormous pleasure when I won the WISPA Award. Um, uh, he actually emailed me to congratulate me, and that was definitely one wow. of the highlights of my of my writing career because I I don't I've never interacted with him, even though he's published me. His magazine has published me a number of times, but it's other people running the magazine that wasn't him directly. Yeah. So, so that was very, very pleasant. I'm actually hosting and, him this Saturday night on um, a two-hour live Q&A for people who've done the Writer's work- Workshop. If you're interested, um, you can email me afterwards, and I'll send you a link to the thing. He'll be live for two hours answering questions and stuff. He loves it. Oh, he loves cool. that. So that's this, this coming Saturday. That, that, would be, that would be spectacular. Thank you. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Oh, good. All right. So um, – yeah, we've run out of time, and all I can say, anybody who's not familiar with, with Alex, as I was not, hopefully by now having listened to this, that uh, you are and, and are interested in checking out his, uh, his works. And uh, what would be the first book they should start with? He's, I know you said the short story, but in terms of a book? In terms of novels, I would start with The Middling Affliction, which is the first in the Conradverse series. Good. And like I said, it's currently it's two books. They're both available in audio for those who like me who prefer to listen. Uh, but they're also available as ebooks and print uh, wherever books are sold. My publisher is pretty good about that. Uh, and uh, hopefully, book three will be done by the end of 2024 and released sometime in 2025. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Alex, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Rise of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899, and 2024 marks its 125th anniversary. So Carnation has been making delicious milk products for one and a quarter centuries, and is still going strong. Now, if that doesn't show you customer support, I don't know what does. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>